Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. And I think the reason I operated in a very transactional way in my life is because I was dealing with a lot of pain or not dealing with it. So I was very much living as a a survivor would, which is just one foot in front of the other. And I was letting life drive me. And I was passing a lot of time. When I really think back about it, I passed a lot of time, luckily doing things that people approved of or that had some kind of purpose inadvertently or had some kind of stature inadvertently but I wasn't consciously making those choices so it wouldn't land on me that I was living in paradise or it wouldn't land on me that I was doing a job that other people would strive to do and maybe that sounds almost silly but that's really what I think about it my pain stopped me from appreciating the path that I was on Hello, it's Light Watkins, and we are back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. And if this is your first time tuning into the show, here is what you are in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements, or they create films, or they write books that inspire people, And my guest this week started a platform called Life and Lemonade TV. Her name is Leah Marville. Leah grew up in the gym of the Caribbean, otherwise known as Barbados. Her father passed away rather suddenly when she was just 11 years old. And Leah's mission from that point on was to help provide for herself and her mom. So when she was approached at 16 to become a model, she saw that not as an opportunity to be in the limelight, but as a great way to earn money. So she took that opportunity and began balancing modeling with going to law school. Later, she was offered a chance to enter into the Miss Barbados competition. And at the time, she had a charity that she was very passionate about. And she saw competing as a way of bringing more awareness to that charity. So when she won Miss Barbados in 2009, Leah spent much of her reign on helping children who had lost their families due to accidents. After her reign, she finished law school and began working with death row inmates, but she realized that she wasn't happy, she wasn't fulfilled, and she still had a lot of unprocessed trauma from the deaths of her father and then later from the passing of her best friend. This led Leah to take a leap of faith in quitting her law firm and diving into a deep therapy course in Los Angeles that a friend suggested that she try. And from there... Leah was able to face her fears, and it was during that time that Leah began creating Life and Lemonade, where she was on a mission to share stories of other people who have transformed their lives and healed themselves and beat the odds. And most recently, she launched the Be, Do, Become Planner to help people live with more intention and purpose. Leah's got a fascinating story that I cannot wait to share with you, but before we get into Leah's story, 
I have a quick question for you. Have you ever meditated for 108 days in a row? If not, are you up for a challenge like that? Because if you are, then you're invited to join my 108-day meditation challenge. The 108-day challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which teaches you practices like meditation, obviously, but also manifesting abundance, accessing your potential, overcoming fear, finding your purpose, etc., etc. So the way it works is you pay a $39 entry fee. You get access to the 7-Day Meditation Kickstart, which will teach you everything you need to know in order to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day. And you'll get these daily prompts and accountability to help support you in your 108-day commitment. And by the end, not only will you be a daily meditator, but you'll also be a part of a larger community of other daily meditators. It's kind of like running a marathon with other meditators cheering you along each step of the way. And the best part is, once you cross the finish line, your $39 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've successfully gone through the challenge and it's designed to help you accomplish what feels like a marathon to many people, which is finally becoming a daily meditator. To get more information about that, just go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let us help you take your inner practices to the next level. And now, let's dive into the backstory of Leah Marville and find out what inspired her to start Life and Lemonade. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's an honor getting to dive into your story. You and I have known each other for a little over a year now, I guess. And you have definitely been an inspiration to me. And so I'm sure once the people get to hear all of the experiences you've had and the leaps of faith you've taken, you'll be an inspiration to them as well. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I guess the inspiration goes both ways. It's definitely been an exchange. So, Thank you. All right. So I typically start these conversations off talking about childhood. So I'm sure people can hear you have a bit of an accent. So you were born in St. James Parish of Barbados. First yes, of all, correct. can you let us know where Barbados is in relationship to the United States? And then secondly, what is the St. James Parish like? Hmm. Okay. So Barbados is an island in the Caribbean Sea. It's the only island that is outside of the archipelago, which is the chain of islands that make up the Caribbean. It's a little tiny island on the outside. We call ourselves the gem of the Caribbean. And St. James, where I grew up, where I still live, where my mom still lives, is known as the Gold Coast. So that's where we get a lot of tourists. That's where we have a lot of our high-end hotels, our luxury stays, our luxury shops. But it's all beautiful. I mean, the entire island is beautiful. We're surrounded by water, crystal clear blue waters so and sunshine. So, yeah. So everyone in Barbados lives fairly close to the beach? Like you can walk to the beach within a few minutes or something like that? I would say from every angle you can walk. The beach is probably like 15 minutes, between 5 and 15 minutes for most people, unless you're like in the center of the island. In which case, Mm -hmm. it's probably like 20 minutes. (laughs) So it sounds like you grew up in paradise. Like what most people would consider paradise, that's where you basically grew up. Yeah, I actually can't say differently. Barbados is definitely the gem that we call ourselves. Mm. So then what was that like as a kid? Do you remember having a favorite toy or activity as a child? 
Were you on the beach a lot? Was it swimming? What was it? I mean, we definitely spent a lot of time at the beach, but wearing a, a bikini and being on the beach is definitely a standard thing for us. Sundays was a, a big beach day for families and stuff. But, you know, the regular extracurricular activities, dance, football, surfing for some people, that's the kind of stuff we would get into. And then for me, I guess my favorite toy, I had this dollhouse that that I didn't know impacted my life until recently, but it was my favorite toy. And it was this two-story dollhouse. It was beautiful. And I remember you could have put batteries in it and turned the lamps on the outside of the dollhouse on. And it was just fancy. It was beautiful. It shaped my view of the type of house that I always wanted to live in. It had a spiral staircase and just big windows, floor to ceiling windows and that kind of thing. So I would say that that was my favorite toy. What do you mean by it shaped you or or influenced you? You just realized, what did you realize recently about the dollhouse? Well, you know, I live in in Los Angeles and Mm -hmm. I really have a love for LA and the neighborhoods and driving through the neighborhoods. And I was reflecting while driving through a neighborhood and I was like, what is it about these neighborhoods that get me? Because I have this way of just reflecting on everything. And I brought it all the way back or took it all the way back to that specific dollhouse Mm. that it looked a lot like the houses in the neighborhoods that I would drive through. It looked like it represented a peaceful life, it represented an Mm. easy life, well manicured, that kind of thing. So would you describe your childhood as peaceful and easy, well manicured? (laughs) I mean, it was in many ways at the time. My childhood was very adventurous. I was a very adventurous kid and busy. I, I did a lot of extra. I danced a lot. And when I wasn't doing that, I was riding my bike or rollerblading. I was very much an active kid, like out in the neighborhood. My neighborhood is comprises like avenues, multiple avenues, one after the other. And I would leave home and ride out of my avenue and into other avenues and be gone for like hours and then come back with my friends. So it was very active. Me and my neighbors, we grew up in a neighborhood. So there were neighbors that I always played with and it was good. I enjoyed my childhood. I've heard you say that in Barbados, they really stress academia. So was that something that was a topic of conversation in your house growing up with your parents? Were they always talking about your grades and you have to make sure you do good in school and you have to become a lawyer or doctor or anything like that? Or or what were they talking about? Let me just say that there was an expectation that you would apply yourself. There was an expectation Mm -hmm. of excellence and good performance in school. Your report card at the end of the year was something you wanted to make sure looked good. (laughs) But within my household, I think my parents gave me a lot of space to be myself. And they weren't very strict or I shouldn't say they focused on academia, but they weren't hovering with it which I respect a lot, but it's definitely a societal expectation that you will do well in school. What was your favorite memory of your dad? Favorite memory of my dad. Or one of the favorite memories of your dad. I don't have many. I don't have many memories of him during that time. But what I am fond of, I do remember that he used to play the guitar and sing country (laughs) and western songs and that kind of, and he would record himself. So he would be playing and he would have uh, the stereo on record. He had this glass stereo, I remember. And he would make these tapes of him recording. And I would be present for that and try to record on it with him and that kind of thing. So that 
stuck with me because it was a, a creative expression that I think I carried with me throughout my life. And I do remember him saying as much as he would let me sit there with him as he recorded these songs, he would very much say, do not touch the guitar. Because I was very much that child that will play the guitar as if I knew what I was doing. So, yeah. Did he sing? Did he have a good voice? Yeah, I think so. Like I said, I don't remember much. In fact, I went on a hunt recently to find those tapes. Hmm. I located them, but I haven't retrieved them. But yeah, he did have a voice. He could play the guitar. He was very artistic, actually. He used to make wall art as well. Now that we're actually having this conversation, I realize that he was an accountant by profession, but was mm-hmm. also simultaneously very creative. And I actually think that's the first time I made that comparison to myself, that I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I'm also creative. Mm. So he was I really an artist that was kind of posing as an accountant. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Maybe he had a dream to be, I don't know, some kind of rock star or country and Western artist or something. So talk about that experience when you were 11 years old and you found out that he had to go to Miami. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think I was in school during that time. And I remember having a breakdown, crying in class. And my teacher was asking what was wrong. And I told her that my dad had to go to Miami. And I was hysterically crying. But I actually didn't know why he went to Miami. I just knew that it was the first time that he had traveled away from me from what seemed like an unexplained period of time. And I think that is the point where, based on my recollection, that I came to know that he was actually sick. So that was the first time that they explained to me that he had to go to Miami for an operation and that he had a brain tumor, he collapsed at work, and that he would go to Miami, have this operation and come back and he'd be fine. But when he did come back, he didn't come home. And it so turned out that the operation removed his short-term memory. And so from there, he went into treatment and he was in the hospital after that. And he pretty much deteriorated shortly after that and passed away. So I didn't see much of him after that moment in time. I think my family became pretty protective of me. They didn't want me to see him in that state, I guess. Yeah, and he, he passed shortly, a couple months, probably like six months after that, I think. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, 
You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Would you say that experience made you less focused as a student or more focused? It's interesting, right? You would think that losing a parent in the middle of school would make you, and I guess it does for some people, it would make you distracted. But I think the way I dealt with my grief at that age was instead of expressing my emotions through sadness or tears or whatnot, I actually became extremely hyper-focused and extremely disciplined. Well, I guess I just focused on what I could control for my grades. So I became extremely focused. And what did you see yourself becoming when you, quotes, grew up? Hmm. I actually never really saw myself becoming anything. I remember saying at six years old that I wanted to be an authority. I didn't, didn't know what I wanted to be an authority. You, you want to tell people what to do? <laughs> I, I didn't even know that that was the thing because I don't think I told people what to do even at a young age. I very much was on my own feet, as we would say. But I guess I felt like an authority was some person of, of stature and I wanted to be that, but I didn't know in what. And I never really saw myself becoming anything in particular. I know I was very much a dancer at that age. When I was younger and I was into art, I drew a lot and that was my focus. But I never thought of a career, to be honest. Did you have an idea of what success would look like for someone like you from Barbados, single parent, making Mm. enough money to take care of your family or anything like that? I think growing up in school, I didn't think of the big picture in that way. I think after losing a parent, life gets very real. Mm-hmm. And your focus is very much on the present. And for me, I didn't have the luxury of like dreaming of this big future. I just became very hyper-focused on providing for myself and my mom, who in my 11-year-old mind became my responsibility, believe it or not. And I know she would hate to hear me say that, but that's just how I processed it, you know? And so I felt like whatever I needed to do to provide for us or to make the load easier for her, that was the thing that I was going to do. So at 14 years old, I started working at a material store during the summers and during the Christmas vacations or Easter vacation, I would go to work at a material store and I would make money to buy my, the material for my school uniforms and to buy my books and that kind of thing. And in my mind, I was doing it to ease my mom's burden. So she would just focus on the things like the house and I would take care of everything else. So success for me was just surviving, I guess. So when you were scouted as a teenager by some modeling agent, you weren't thinking, oh, I get to be on a cover of a magazine. You were thinking, I can pay some more bills or I can (laughs) provide financially for myself. (laughs) Truth be told, it took me a very long time. I had been approached several times locally by people in Barbados who said I should be a model. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something I ever wanted to do. As an academic, I thought that it was a waste of time, truthfully. And it's only after I got scouted very haphazardly that I saw the potential for money in it. And yes, at that point, I was like, okay, well, this is a money-making opportunity. Then sure, I'm going to explore it. Not because I want to be a model, but because I have the opportunity to make some money. But you were also thinking of becoming a lawyer, right? Like you were in some kind of law program when you were in your later teens. 
Yeah. So at the time that I, I got discovered as a model, I was already in law school. I was pursuing a, a law degree, but that also happened pretty haphazardly. My dad's twin sister, she called me one day. Well, when everybody was enrolling for university, I still hadn't decided whether I wanted to go to university, nor had I decided that I wanted to be a model. I just hadn't decided anything. Mm -hmm. I did not know what I wanted to be. And she called me up and she was like, listen, you have to make a, a decision. You're either going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a doctor, take a pick, figure it out. You know, and then I asked her, I went through the process with her. I was like, how long do I have to be in school to be a doctor? She said seven years. And I was like, nope, that's too long. And I said, how long do I have to be a lawyer? She said five. And I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to do that. And then luckily for me, I had the grades to get into the law program. And so that's how I ended up signing up to be in law. And I did that. I entered school way after everybody else, like two weeks after everybody had gone there books and their bag and they went to orientation and they all met each other and they knew what classes they were going to. I was just popping up into school two weeks later and now trying to figure out everything. And I'm grateful to my aunt for that because it has paid the rest of my life. Yeah. So that's how I got into the law program. And then during that period of time, I was also scouted. And so I kind of have always done the two, the two things in my life. You had to pause the law school thing, right? To go and, and do some more modeling in Jamaica. So was that a big decision for you at that time? <laughs> it was a wild ride during that time. So in the middle of my law degree, so what you call your undergrad or for us, it would be a bachelor's of law. That first program was three years. And I did that in Barbados at the University of the Cape Hill campus. And in my last year, I was presented with the opportunity to move to Jamaica and to pursue modeling. And so in a very unheard of way, like unprecedented does not happen. I kind of did law school at a distance. So I would travel back and forth. Mm -hmm. And my tutors were not pleased at all because law is a full-time program. You have to attend 80% of your, your classes. And I was just winging it. And I was going back and forth between the two countries. So once I finally did complete my law degree, I then put the second part of my degree, which would be our legal certificate or the bar exam. I put that on hold for four years. And within that four-year period, I traveled and I lived abroad and I, I modeled internationally. So I've heard you talk about your roommate in South Africa. I'm assuming you were in Cape Town or Johannesburg modeling and... Your roommate's Cape brother Town. had HIV or something like that. Oh, wow. Mm. I don't even remember her name now. That's so wild. Yeah. You really did your research here now. You had to go dig <laughs> real Everybody says that. that. Old, yes, I did old, my research. I don't even know where you... F I'm trying to wrap my brain as to where you found that. Wow. Yeah. There was a model living in our model apartment. And we were living in Cape Town. And she was from the townships. But because of her modeling career, she was able to move herself out of the townships and live with us in Camps Bay, which is a really beautiful area. But we, the reality of her life, man, her life was rough. And her brother, yeah, her brother had HIV and he eventually died from it. And mm -hmm. I mean, she gave me a glimpse into what that was like, you know, living with a family member who was suffering in that way and also living in a township or a society that really carried the stigma around the disease and what her family had to endure. And I just became very sensitive to her plight. 
and you know the plight of persons living with HIV. And I mention it because you started a couple of charities later related to yeah. both that as well as your own experience of losing a parent at a young age. Yeah. But before we get to that, that was after you became Miss Barbados, right? The charity happened. Yeah, when you started yeah. those charities. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute. If you're not even into modeling, you're just doing it for the <laughs> for the money. <laughs> why are you in a Miss Barbados pageant? Because normally people who do those kinds of things, they're in pageants since they're like 12 years old. They're always yeah. in pageants. I have to say that I'm really grateful for the path that my life has taken because now I can truly embrace it. But everything that I did, like these things that I did on my path were presented to me. Like I never saw myself as a pageant girl. I actually was very rough around the edges as a child. I was a tomboy. I just could not see myself on anybody's stage talking about world peace, which is literally how we, we speak about it. I can see myself doing it. And I was encouraged to join. And at first I refused. And then eventually I agreed to do it. And it became a really enriching experience in my life and kind of changed everything in my life. So that's how I got into it. Just like modeling, just like going to law school. That's how I ended up entering Miss Barbados world. And what kept me there was the ability to do the charity. Because I felt like, okay, now I could apply meaning to this thing. That's what kept me interested in doing the pageant. Well, let me ask you this. You and I have, you know, we know each other personally. And I hope what I'm going to say next isn't too personal. <laughs> but... You have told me before that your beauty was never really validated as a child growing up, right? So I'm just curious, did you see yourself as beautiful enough to win? Ms. Like, Did you think you were going to win, Miss Barbados? Or were you just doing it because you could do it? No, I didn't think I could win Miss Barbados. The conversation around beauty is a challenging one because for many people listening they might roll their eyes. And I've heard like Oprah have several conversations about people who she thinks are pretty and them talking about their own beauty. And so I hate to be that person, but to answer your question, appearance was never a thing for me because life was actually happening to me. You know, mm -hmm. at a very young age, I lost my father. At 18, I lost my best friend. I was surviving. So my outward appearance was definitely not something that I took stock of. And I think my family didn't address it in that way. We were all very much surviving. And so there were no affirmations in that way, <laughs> coming across in that way. And it's a very much a Caribbean society where sometimes you don't always have that flattery being expressed. So I grew up sort of oblivious to how I presented in the world. And in many ways, I still, you know, that's such a subjective thing. But I didn't think I would win Miss Barbados. I have same insecurities as everyone else that would have entered the pageant. Pageantry is something where competition and comparison runs high. And so I fell victim to that as well. What I did do was pour myself into my charity. And I made the charity the biggest thing that it could have been. And that was what I was hoping would make me win more than anything else. When they called the name of the runner-up and you two were standing there, what was the first mm -hmm. thing that, that entered your mind? Well, first off, I would go back to say, so my question, which I don't remember what it was, I think I hated how I answered it. 
And so immediately after, because I blind in my mind, I blind. I said something, I cannot tell you what I said, or I can't tell you what they asked me. But I remember immediately after I went backstage and like I started to cry and I was like, oh my gosh, I am definitely not winning this pageant. So at the time when they were calling the winners, I was just there for the formality of it. And then when they called my name, <laughs> I literally, this was the first time in my life that I cried tears of joy. Hmm. I had never experienced it before. And it was so involuntary. And I started to cry. And also, I was very much not a crier. Was your whole family there? A teenager. The, yeah, my whole family was there. In the audience? My whole family was there, yeah. Yeah, my mom, my aunts, my cousins. Yeah, everybody was there. Did and they felt like dead? they... No, I didn't. Not in that moment. Not in that very moment. But, you know, in your quiet moments, you do you do wish that your life played out in a certain way. But in that moment, I had my mom and she was so proud and making her proud makes me feel good. So that was my focus. All right. So you're 24, you're Miss Barbados. Now you have a platform to launch this charity and what's happening in the background? Is there like a next level, like you're going to compete for Miss Universe, Miss World or something like that while you're, and maybe you can impact even more people? Like, are you taking right. it seriously so, now? <laughs> yeah. So the process is that you enter your national pageant and if you win, you then go on to compete on the world stage with 20 or 30 other countries. And the aim is to either win or to place in the top five top 10 of this because it now gives you a platform to do more whatever your mission is in the world so if you do have a direction that you want to become some kind of world ambassador you want to do charity on a larger scale you want to impact impoverished in in africa or whatever you want to do that now gives you the opportunity to do that so at the point that i i won miss barbados i did sit up and i was like okay well, this is what we're doing and if i am now carrying this title then I'm going to step fully into it. And that's what I did. The charity became even more important to me at that point in time. Yeah, and I went to Miss World to win. And to fly the Barbados flag high in a way that I felt like I could do. When you're representing a country, when you win that competition, do they give you like a team of advisors and people to hand handlers and is this whole other reality sort of created or this bubble created around you? Do you get a bunch of guys hitting you up, trying to date you? And wow. like, is that like just completely a different thing? Because you're 24. So you, you still got some growing to do, you know, even though you've been through a lot. But I imagine this would be a, maybe an accelerator on life in certain ways. You know, it definitely it was an accelerator. It was a prestigious title as well. So you carried yourself in a very diplomatic way. And it accelerated you to like an actual representative of your country. And depending on the country that you were from, you did have handlers. You had a team of people who worked out your wardrobe, the way you carried yourself, the things you did and did not do, the things that you engaged in and did not engage in. But I was from Barbados. And so my team was really small, but powerful. We did a lot for the small country that we are. We got my wardrobe together. We put together a campaign. We raised funds. We did a lot in a very short period of time to be able to have me represent Barbados in a very strong way, which we were successful at. But like I said, it's, it's very prestigious. So there isn't much time to focus on the showmanship of it. It becomes a role at that point in time. So I don't know about the guys and that. That's very much not. 
I read that you you said you weren't even dating anyone. You weren't even thinking about dating during that time. Like you were so focused on the things that you were up to. Did you like being a celebrity, a local celebrity? Being rough around the edges, as you say? It was all very new to me. There were aspects of it that I appreciated. And then there were aspects of it that I really did not like. I think during that time, I became very aware that that fame or celebrity wasn't something that I was going to pursue further, like on a bigger Mm -hmm. scale. But what I did appreciate is that because of the impact of the charity, I was able to have conversations with regular people who would just approach me. So in the supermarket, I remember this one lady who approached me because the charity was helping her brother. And we were able to have a, a conversation and I got greater insight into her life and the impact of the work that we were actually doing. And so I met a lot of people. It was very grassroots in that way. I met a lot of people on the ground and that I think filled me up more than anything else. But I didn't like that I couldn't just do simple things at one point in time. Like I couldn't just go to the supermarket with my hair tied up and makeup. But you know, that was fully done up in a very small way. No, I don't want to make it sound like that. No, but you have to be presentable (laughs) when you have a platform. But yeah, so fame and celebrity was never a focus for me. So then describe your transition back to law school. How did that happen? Because now you're like Miss Famous Barbados. Like now you're going back to law school. Yeah. Well, for me, it was important to complete what I had started. And after my reign had been completed, I remember sitting down with the late prime minister. He's now late, but the prime minister at that time, David Thompson, who was also a lawyer. And we were talking about where do I go from here after being Miss Barbados? And he said, you know, you should go back to law school. You should complete that cycle. And that's exactly what I did. I had a very clear opening after my reign had ended and I used the opportunity to go back to law school. Shortly after that, I picked up the franchise for Miss Barbados mm-hmm. within that same year. So having taken a break away from law school, right, would you say you were more passionate about it or you just wanted to complete what you started? It was a transition back mentally to get back into that because law school is very taxing and it requires your brain to be in overdrive and extreme discipline. And after you've lived a life where you're handled or you can create and design your life, going into a structure like law school was was challenging. So that was a transition, but I also had purpose going through law school. So I very much wanted to be present there and to complete that and have that added to my name. And what attracted you to the Human Rights Council? Why that area as opposed to any other area of law? Oh, no, man. I think, you know, now at that point, I was on the thread of humanity, having done the charity. And life was just constantly pulling me in those spaces. So being on the ground, talking to people who are afflicted in different spaces. And even through the, you know, at law school, we had a legal clinic where you would have to take in clients, practice clients, but they were real people with real issues. And I, I just became very attracted to the human rights side of, of law. And at the time that I did that, living in Jamaica, the opportunity was also presented to work with that organization to create change. It was very grassroots as well. We handled the affairs of death row inmates, the appeals, and ensure that their human rights were being observed. Like I said, it was just in the thread of where my heart was at that time, I think. It doesn't sound like the most lucrative 
career path. So someone being a self-described hustler, <laughs> how are you going to supplement that? What else were you doing for right. income? At that time, I was, again, still juggling, modeling, and mm-hmm. doing this stint. Money at that time was not very much a priority for me. And mm-hmm. it was meant to be temporary. It wasn't lucrative, but I was salaried. So I was making money. But I think I was so consumed with what we were doing at the time. Like, you know, we used to go around to all the princes in Jamaica and meet with the prisoners and stuff like that. So it was very consuming. And your heart becomes attached to this work. And I think depending on who you are, money then takes a back seat. But like I said, it was just a temporary. It was for a season. Right. And then you worked in family law, right? Yeah. So eventually after I became a lawyer, I moved into, this was years later, I worked in criminal and then I also worked in family law. Yes. Did you feel like you were living your purpose at that time? To be honest, no. I felt like I was doing what I had to do. And I don't know Mm -hmm. that I had a conscious understanding of purpose in a way that I do now, but it was conflicting for me because law has never really sat squarely in my heart. It was something that I could do. I was good at in different spaces, but it wasn't fulfilling for me. But at the time within that space still, I was doing what I felt I should do. So family was something I felt I should do because of the human rights behind it and the impact that I I would have been making in people's lives. But I wouldn't say that it was a purpose. No. Well, that's what's interesting because it's like you're doing the conventional thing and what would be considered on paper to be a very high level conventional thing, right? You're working in law, right? yet you're also having impact. You're working with death row inmates, you're working with families, and you had an opportunity to kind of peek behind the fame veil and see what that was right. like. And you were living in paradise. So it's like you have all <laughs> of the things that everyone is striving for, yet you don't feel right. like you're, you're living your purpose. I know you also, in a previous conversation we had, you talked about this experience at a cafe in Barbados where someone confronted you. Trinidad, um, yeah. Trinidad, excuse me. And I'm not sure when that actually happened chronologically, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that if it relates to this subject of not feeling fulfilled inside and how that sort of shifted your path. So that encounter happened in Trinidad, like you said, at a coffee shop where this girl that I know, and I don't even know if she knows the impact that she's had. Her name is Asha Wadada. She came and she sat across from me at the coffee table and she was like, you know, I can see that you're not fulfilled and that whatever you're doing in your life right now needs to change, right? This is all unsolicited, right? You didn't say anything. You didn't like open a conversation with her. Nothing. I said nothing. She just came and she sat. And that happened at the tail end of living years of a life doing something that I wasn't meant to do. So going back to the first part of your question, where it's like you seem to have all the things. So you're doing this high profile career and all that. But it's interesting that you could have all those things and not know what you have when you're not conscious to it, when you're a survivor. And I I think the reason I operated in a very transactional way in my life is because I was dealing with a lot of pain or not dealing with it. So I was very much living as a, a survivor would, which is just one foot in front of the other. And I was letting life drive me. And I was passing a lot of time. When I really think back about it, I passed a lot of time 
luckily doing things that people approved of or that had some kind of purpose inadvertently or had some kind of stature inadvertently. But I wasn't mm-hmm. consciously making those choices. So it wouldn't land on me that I was living in paradise or it wouldn't land on me that I was doing a job that other people would strive to do. And maybe that sounds almost silly, but that's really what I think about it. My pain stopped me from appreciating the path that I was on. And that culminated, like I said, Asha pierced through that years after. And she really made me think about the life that I was living. I then sat in that coffee shop and I asked myself, why am I here? Why am I living in Trinidad? Because I had finished law school at least five years ago. By this point in time, I was practicing, but I didn't have any family there. There was nothing tying me to the country. And it was the first time that I was like, what am I doing? Where am I going? What do I actually want in my life? What career am I actually pursuing? Do I want to do law? Do I like it? What else do I want to do? Where do I want to live? So in many ways, I woke up in that moment. And what was the next move then? What became apparent to you that you needed to do? Well, I needed to leave. I remember in that season of my life, I quit my practice. I Mm. moved out of the apartment that I was living in and I moved into a smaller apartment and I went really quiet for about three to four months. Did you have money saved up? I was doing okay. I was hustling. So I was still practicing. I had clients, but Mm. I wasn't in office like I had Mm. been before. I was working for a group of companies in Trinidad and I, I quit that. And I kept one or two clients, but And then I would get involved in different projects. I was still running Miss Barbados at that time. But I remember just completely downsizing. And I think I lost my train of thought. Oh, we were just talking about the next step. After that conversation, and you recognize that, hey, I need to do something different. I guess what I'm really asking is, how did you make your way to LA? Right. So after that, like I said, I quit my practice. I moved into a smaller apartment and I went really quiet. And during that, three to four month period is when I would go to that coffee shop every day. It was the only thing I did for that period of time that actually kept my sanity. Strange enough. You would just go there and just like do emails and just, or read? Yeah. Yeah. I would do emails. I would do little projects. People would come into the coffee shop. We would sit and we would chat and that's how I would meet people and end up in, in other projects. I ended up tasting their menus for them because I would stay there all day. (laughs) And then During that period of time, my friend Jenna, she approached me and she was like, there's this therapy course that I would like you to do. And it's it's really intense and I think you should do it. And it took me a really long time to say yes to that, but I eventually did. And that is what changed my life. So I went into deep therapy. That was the beginning of therapy in my life, which was probably like five or six years ago. And from there, I slowly came home to myself. Can That's you describe a little bit of what that deep therapy was, was like? It was like 12 hours a day. It was with a small group of people. It was here in California. And we went through every aspect of your life. We went through your thought process, your traumas, your vision for your life, your outlook on, on yourself, peel back the layers of everything. Everything that had happened and everything that you presented yourself to be, your mindset, everything. Had um, Jenna gone through this? Yeah, she went through it before me and was going through a different stage of it at the time. Did it cost a lot of money? It was a lot for me at that time, yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, no, it's relatively affordable. But, you know, sometimes 
people will use an excuse of, oh, it's too expensive. But did you feel like aligned with that possibility? And that's what made you decide to fork over what was a lot of money to you at the time to take that leap? It was something I knew I had to do for myself. So I didn't have the money for it. And that was my excuse. I told Jen I didn't have the money for it. And she's like, Leah, just buy the ticket and come. I will figure out where you can stay. And I borrowed money. I asked different people to help me with it. I literally pulled together money at that point in time because like I said, I hadn't been working and I very much took the leap. It was a leap of faith and it was on the fly. And when I got here the first day, I ended up staying overnighting with someone in the program who I had never met before. And Jenna made that arrangement for me. I'd never met this person. It was all on just completely out of my comfort zone. And after the first day, then I met my friend Heather who is my really good friend now, she offered to give me a ride back to where I was staying. And we became friends on that journey. And for the rest of the time that I was in the course, I stayed with her. So it was very haphazard. There was nothing planned out here. But it was something that I knew I needed to do. It's interesting because a lot of people, they moved to Los Angeles to get discovered and for fame and for fortune. You went there to discover yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And in many ways, Ellie continues to be that for me. Yes. Mm -hmm. Self-discovery. So then what was the inspiration behind Life and Lemonade? Because I know when you moved to LA, you you were still in modeling and maybe that was one of your main sources of income. You're still doing some freelance attorney work. I'm not sure what's going on with your charities at that time, but how did Life and Lemonade come into your awareness? So when I moved to LA, I moved what I call it, I moved for happiness and purpose and everything Mm -hmm. in all categories of happiness and purpose. So that would have been career, relationship, family, that kind of thing. And when I got here, everything that I had planned did not go as planned. (laughs) It completely fell through. And I was in a very painful space in my life where, you know, you build up this expectation and a vision of what you think your life is going to be. And then life does not cooperate with you or seemingly so life doesn't cooperate with you. And so for the first six months that I I moved to LA, I wasn't working. I was in a relationship. The relationship wasn't working. And I really found myself at a, a place of rock bottom. I felt defeated and it took me back, you know, after, and that's on the heels of having done the course therapy and then finding clarity to then find yourself in an unclear space. So it almost felt like I was taking 10 steps back. And so that just drove me into a new space of of self-reflection. And I became more vocal. I became more expressive during that time. I started talking about what was going on with me with different people. And I realized the more I spoke to people, the more people had similar stories. And then people's stories were similar to other people's stories. And I realized that we were all walking around with versions of stories that we owned that were affecting our lives and that in many ways we could learn from each other. And so Life and Lemonade was birthed from my wish to ventilate what I was dealing with and then give other people a safe space to ventilate and learn and be inspired by each other's stories so that we heal whatever trauma it is that we're walking around with. And I figured that I was able to do that with my background in television. And I just kind of pulled everything together, all the things that I was good at, 
how I describe it is like I Venn diagrammed my life and I found the center of the Venn diagram and that's how Life and Lemonade was birthed. Hmm. So what was the first tangible step that you took in launching Life and Lemonade beyond just the idea phase? Did you have to talk to mm-hmm. someone? Did you go out and buy a camera? Did you book a, a venue to record your first interview? I spoke about it a lot with a friend of mine and I recorded it on my phone. I didn't buy anything. I just said I would use what I have. And I had a friend at the time who's still a friend of mine, Marlon. He was my very first Marlon was uh, your first interview. one? Yeah. Peterson? It didn't, yeah, Marlon was my first interview. And you met um, him on one of your party boats, right? No, 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 party boat. I met him on a boat in Trinidad okay. years okay. earlier, but it wasn't a party boat. And at that time, I actually found out a bit of his story and I wanted to interview him. I think we did do an interview. So Life and Lemonade was a sequel to the original idea, which was called Maverick, where I wanted to show the Mavericks, people who went against the grain. And I interviewed Marlon initially, but when I revisited and I created Life and Lemonade, Marlon was the very first interview and his story was incredible and is incredible. He was one of your guests. Mm-hmm. And so Thanks he to was you. really you the inspiration. <laughs> You're welcome. He was really an inspiration to me because he said to me, there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Like light can always enter. And his ability to transcend his 10-year prison sentence and to come out into the world and live with such hope and faith then gave me the drive to do this show. And so he became my first guest. But he wasn't the first person you actually launched. Bianca was the first person that you actually launched. So how many, how many people did you interview before you actually launched it? I think I had three episodes in the can before I launched it. So I interviewed Bianca, Marlon, and then Carl Kanai. Those were my first. And Zoya. Those are, sorry, four episodes. They were my mm-hmm. first people. Now, having done these other charities and raised thousands of dollars and impacted all these people, did you have really high expectations for starting off in Life and Lemonade? And if so, were those expectations met or did you have to kind of adjust and settle in for the long term? No, it was very organic. Life and Lemonade was just an expression, a creative Mm -hmm. expression. I didn't go in with like, oh, I want this to be a network TV show or, or whatnot. I just wanted it to have the results of creating inspiration and giving people a space to share their story. And my prayer was and continues to be that as many people that could see it would see it. And it's only now that, you know, at least a year or two years have passed that I I now start to think of the business structure of it truthfully. But at the time it was very organic how it started. What was something that was more challenging than you thought? And what was something that was more pleasantly surprising than you expected about Life and Lemonade? What was more challenging was everything. (laughs) Was everything. (laughs) Everything was more challenging than I thought. Growing an audience is always challenging because you think you create this great story and you put it out and you just expect it to have its own legs, but it doesn't always work like that. And so you very much have to treat it like a business. And I'm a creative, but I also have to be the business person behind this thing. And then being a motivator is a very uh, heart-centered expression, but being a successful YouTuber, it requires a different part of your brain. And I think going between those two things 
was a challenge for me because I live in my heart space a lot. So I go according to my feelings, whereas growing Life on Lemonade required me to be more structured. So that was a challenge. And what I loved about it or was pleasantly surprised by it was how fulfilled I was in sharing people's stories. Like just talking to people, like each episode ended up being like two hours because I was just, I connected so deeply with it and I would always leave feeling so refreshed and I did not expect that, not to the depth that I, I continue to feel it. So I know in many ways that I'm on the right path because it, it fulfills me so much. I've also known you to be very focused and, you know, such a hard worker because here you are, former Miss Barbados at your computer at two in the morning, editing one of your own episodes. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's like motivating you? What's driving you to just keep showing up like that, even though you may only be getting 100 views on a video? Like, what are you thinking about? Because I have heard you in certain interviews, you've said that this project was on your heart because you meet girls who think that what you have done is out of their reach. Like, are you thinking, like, are you really that person thinking about those kinds of things at two in the morning or what's keeping you in the saddle? I mean, it's a combination of things, right? But one is that I gave my word. So I started something that I feel like I need to finish, which, you know, goes back to why I would go back to law school. It also goes back to just this kind of personality that I've built within myself or this expectation from high school, being disciplined in school, being disciplined in law school. I just tap into a discipline and I hold myself to this level of integrity to continue to show up. And I think I'm aware that when I don't show up, it's because of fear or it's because of some kind of feeling of inadequacy. And so I try to push myself through that and not let it consume me. And so that's why I keep showing up. And then I know that it's impacting people because every time I do put out an episode, I get feedback. I get people telling me how, how much is it's impacted in their lives. And that's what keeps me going. I know it's, it's mm -hmm. more about them than it is about myself. Mm -hmm. And then you recently, meaning in the last couple of years, you've started, it's like you're obsessively creating these planners and this yearly wellness planner. And again, I know you, so I know you're, you're <laughs> probably the only person I know who actually has a planner that you write in. And I'm um, not the only person you know. That I know, that I know <laughs> that you carry it around with you everywhere you go, you write in it. And so naturally you're passionate about it, even though we're in this digital age, <laughs> mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you created, how many have you done so far, including this next year's planner? Two or three? So this is the second iteration of, of it. So I've Meaning you did one and then, okay. Yeah. All right. So this one is called Be, Do, Become, yeah. right? The yearly wellness planner for visionaries, not for slackers, yeah. not for no. procrastinators. <laughs> it's for aspiring visionaries. So even if you're a procrastinator now and you want to be a visionary, it's also for you. <laughs> what, what is driving this? Like, why are you so obsessed with getting these planners out into the world? Mm, again, Be Do Become was birthed out of, like I, I mentioned just now, the Venn diagram of my life. So I'm always looking for, even though Life and Lemonade has been a part calling of mine, I didn't feel like I had that thing. Like I had arrived in the seat of the thing that was really, really driving me, like what my purpose is. And I've done a lot of therapy. I've done a lot of workshops. I've done a lot of personal development and worksheets and writing and journaling and planners have played a very integral 
role in my life. And yes, we're living in a digital age, but writing is so very cathartic and it requires you to be present in a way that you don't get that presence digitally. It, you just don't, right? And so looking at my life, at all the things that I'm good at, looking at Life and Lemonade, looking at the work that we've done and just the Venn diagram of my life, what is the center thing? Where do they all meet? And I remember one day I was sitting at my desk and I realized I had at least four planners, four different 2021 planners here that I bought. I wasn't using all of them, but I realized I had bought them for different things and that I did not have a planner that encapsulated everything that I wanted it to be, which was helping people find their vision or helping me find my vision, doing a vision exercise and then keeping that all in one place, having my vision board in one place, having my daily and weekly, monthly planners in one place, but then also having a space to journal. I didn't have a planner that had contemplated both wellness and productivity. And so I decided then to create one and it was, it just flowed out of me. It just poured out of me. And in doing it, the first iteration, which was last year, in doing that, I really found joy. I found myself in it. I don't know. It's very me. As you say, you know, I walk around with my planner. It's very much a, a part of who I am. Well, Quincy Jones said that if whatever you're creating gives you goosebumps, then that means other people in the world are also going to get goosebumps when they come Aww. across it. Well, I receive that. I receive that. Mm. So how are you thinking about success these days? Success for me is harmony now. Harmony, a balance of life, of family, of wellness, and purpose. Mm -hmm. That's success, success to me. And I feel like I'm living in success in many ways. Things are not perfect. Life isn't perfect. And I do not have all the things that I have. But I have a really strong center and a really strong foundation of wellness. And I'm building stronger relationships with my family, my family members. And I have this planner and I'm walking in purpose and I'm living in service to others. And so in many ways, I feel like I've achieved definitely some level of success. I mean, there are other things that I desire and I, I pray for, but yeah. And if you could go back to young, I don't know, 19-year-old Leah, mm -hmm. and come to her through a dream and offer her some words of wisdom, what's something that you would tell your younger self? Feel your feelings. Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. What does that mean think, to you? I think because of my father's passing and then losing my best friend at 18, I went into a very transactional space in my life and disconnected myself from my feelings. So mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel love because I didn't want to feel pain. And so the mm -hmm. people that I loved, I, I kept at a distance. And even myself, in many ways, I kept myself at a distance from me, which is so ironic because I was still roaming the world and searching the world for me. And I was still searching for like love and that connection that I was simultaneously pushing away, you know, subconsciously so. And I think that if I just took the time to feel my feelings, I would have cried about the things that I needed to cry about. And I would have been angry about the things I needed to be angry about. I would have faced myself. I would have discovered where my pain was. Because of discovering where my pain was, I would just also discover where my joy was. And I would have quicker tapped into the things that made me happy and what was fulfilling to me. So 
I think that would be the greatest message for her would be to feel her feelings. And I encourage anybody now to sit with your feelings. A lot of that is in the work that I do now where just be present with what it is that is passing through your body, what your heart is calling for, what your heart is dealing with, because it gives you information on this life path that you're on. This is a bit of a random question, but do you feel like your dad is still looking down on you? And if so, how does he communicate that? Like, do you hear a random country song somewhere and like, that's my dad? Or do you feel something mm-hmm. in your body in certain moments? Mm-hmm. You know, from time to time, I guess, through different life experiences, I would get random memories, I think, of him would pop up. Or I might hear the sound of his voice randomly. So in many ways, a person leaves, but they never leave your heart. And they, some, right. in many ways, they stay with you. But I have placed him where he is, I should say. So I don't carry him like a load on my back, but he is a visitor in my heart, you know, from time to time, especially when I do experience like significant moments in my life. I would always think about what he would think or what he would say. And even how I show up in the world, how do I represent him and how does he show up in the world through me? Because genealogy and just conditioning and all that, you adopt things from your parents that are subconscious. And so in many ways, I wonder how he shows up through me. But yeah, I do think of him and experience him from time to time. Beautiful. Well, I just want to loop this back around the childhood. and. Uh, <laughs> We knew this was coming. <laughs> you mentioned the dollhouse and what that represents to me is a feeling of safety, homes, being at home, and then particularly a dollhouse where you can turn on the lights, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you've done in your life is you've made the central theme about service, about helping other people heal which is basically what you were wanting to do for yourself. So you're being the change that you want to see. And it's through the healing, it's through walking in purpose that we find our sense of inner peace and therefore our sense of safety, no matter what kind of chaos and turmoil is happening around us. So I just want to acknowledge you for all of the choices that you had to make to stay on your path, even though it wasn't easy, and for continuing to work in your purpose and for sharing your stories, your personal story, as well as the stories of the people that you come across that inspire you and sharing those stories so openly and transparently and vulnerably. And I want everybody to binge watch Life and Lemonade TV <laughs> on YouTube. What's a good episode for the people to start with to get hooked into your, mm. your shows? Mm, there's so many. They're all really so good. But the first episode with Bianca, I know a lot of people resonate with. Marlon's episode of his 10-year prison bid. And then recently I did one with Walshy Fire from Major Lazer. And it was the first time that he shared family trauma as a Caribbean Jamaican man that doesn't talk about these things. He was very much inspired by DMS's death to share mm-hmm. a very vulnerable story of his life. And that that was profound in many ways. So those three, I would say, start with. Well, there you have it. Start with those three. And then also the yearly wellness planner. It's very much an artisanal project. You created it and you had it printed. It wasn't like some kind of Amazon self-publishing thing. It's it's you actually going to the printers, approving yes. 
the drafts and everything. So it's really, really beautifully done. And where can people find that? So they can follow us on Instagram at BDB Wellness Planner. Say that um, again slower. BDB, B do become abbreviated. DB, okay. BDB Wellness Planner. So that's on Instagram. Or you can follow me, Leah Marvel, on Instagram. But you can purchase it on my website, leahmarvel.com. And there's a tab there for the Wellness Planner. And yeah. Do we get it like in two days? Like, is it prime competitive? <laughs> what's, what's the deal? Yeah, two to three days in most places, you'll have it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Leah. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Leah Marville. To get more information about Leah, I suggest following her on social media at Leah Marville. That's L-E-A-H-M-A-R-V-I-L-L-E as well as at Life and Lemonade TV. And there you can get information about her Be, Do, Become yearly planner. You can also find it at leahmarville.com. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you'll see that my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly and comes with bonus commentary. You can also get info on my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find the 108-day meditation challenge. And I'm pretty certain that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. Finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help share these conversations. It only takes 10 seconds to rate it. Just look at your phone screen, click on the name of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app, scroll down past the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars, and just click the one all the way on the right, and you've left a rating. If you've already left a rating and you want to go the extra mile, please leave a review. A couple lines about what you like about the podcast. Thanks in advance for that and make sure you're subscribed so you're notified about the next story from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thanks and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.